Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a fan of this podcast and have an interest in conductors and conducting, may I suggest subscribing to our supporters club over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. With six different levels of subscription, starting from just £5 a month, you can join many other subscribers in enjoying exclusive extra bonus mini-episodes, interviews with prominent figures in the world of classical music, group and personal Zoom meetings, and even the chance to have conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, it's quick and easy to join, and I'd love to see you come and join the conversation all about conducting with the other subscribers and myself very soon. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Spanish conductor who, after playing flute professionally in the UK and Europe, has become a highly successful conductor. He has title positions in Spain, Sweden, Ireland and the US, and has recently been appointed as Chief Conductor in Melbourne, Australia, starting in 2022. It's a pleasure to welcome Jaime Martín. Jaime, lovely to see you and to chat with you today. How are you? Well... I'm very happy to talk to you, Michael. I am, I am very well. I am particularly well today because I am in Santander. Santander is my hometown in yes. Spain. So that's where my parents live. So mm. both, um, you know, my, my father is 89 now. Mm. So I am very happy. I'm very lucky to be able to spend a few days with them. Uh, of course, I cannot stay in their flat because mm. of this so it is very odd to be in my hometown and i i hired an apartment for a few days and this is so incredibly strange anyway but so i am very happy to be able to be in santander and today you believe it or not it's very 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 sunny so i'm very happy (laughs) it's okay here as well it's not too cold um it's january um because i have no idea when this podcast will go out it probably even it could even go out in the summer so we'll see um you just said it's your hometown. So you were born and bred in Santander. Um, and I'm yeah. assuming that's where you first um, got involved with music or discovered music. How did it come? Do you come from a musical family? You know, I am the, I am the oldest. of. We are six brothers and sisters. And mm. I am the oldest. Nobody in my family has ever been involved with music. Not my parents, not my grandparents, not, absolutely nobody. None of my sisters and brothers. So I am the only one. And the reason I, I became interested in music is that my father really was, not, not anymore, I think now he doesn't hear so well, but when he was younger, he really loved music. Actually, mm. my father was the, the example of the people why we do what we do. You know, yes. the, he used to buy LPs and and listen to music. And in Santander, this is a small town, but um, in the summer, in August, we had a a summer festival. Actually, Mm. still, this still exists. Uh, It's going to be 70 years this year of this festival. And when I was eight, my father took me to listen to a symphony orchestra concert. Mm. This was the Spanish radio orchestra. They played Chaik Five and pictures of an exhibition. And this was one of the biggest impressions in my life, this concert. You know, until that moment, whenever I saw my father at home watching TV or listening to music, I thought, oh my God, this is boring. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was eight. Why should I like all that? And I was not at all interested. And I cannot tell you, I mean, I was in that um, concert and suddenly they started. The Chaik Five was the opening piece. So Chaik Five in the first half, pictures in the second half. Wow. And as soon as the clarinets started at the beginning with the low strings underneath, I, I, I was almost in tears. <laughs> I loved it so much. Yeah. And when, when the concert finished, I said to my father, I want to learn to, to play music, you know? Yes. And, so that's how it started. I really wanted to play the violin. Ah. When I and I love the violin. I used to take the, the, the stick of a broom at home yeah, yeah. And, and pretend I was playing the violin, put the broom over my shoulder. <laughs> and at that time in Santander, there was only one violin teacher and that was a private um, 
So you had to pay yeah. whatever amount of money. And, you know, being the oldest of six, and uh, I, I really didn't want my parents to, to spend any money on my musical fantasy. Yes. So I discovered in the town hall, they had a wind band. And if I wanted to learn to play a wind instrument, that was free. So off I went and started playing the flute. So, wow. And it was complete chance. But you know, it's funny that I play the flute because when I started to really love music more, you know, by the time I was 11 or that I was listening to music all the time. Mm. For me, the violin repertoire was like the best thing, you know. I, I could sing Sibelius Violin Concerto or Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Bluch, uh, all the main pieces of the repertoire, listen to Korngold and uh, uh, I remember all these uh, old recordings of Berlin Philharmonic uh, with Christian Ferrat. You know, the, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, because Christian had this amazingly juicy, deep, rich sound. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was incredibly attracted to that at that time. And I love the violin. Yeah. And for me, the flute was a sad instrument with no strings <laughs> <laughs> at that time. <laughs> but, but anyway, this is what I did. You know, yeah. I, 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 in the end, I am very happy I played the flute because although maybe it was not my choice at the moment, thanks to the flute, I, I, I managed to be involved in music, so. And, and in Santander, you said there was a town band. Um, did you then graduate up to, I'm imagining there might be a youth orchestra uh, or something similar, or even it was there an amateur orchestra or something that you could go and join from the band? Nothing like that in Spain at that time. You know, when, uh, uh, you know, I was born in 1965 when Franco was still around in Spain. So mm -hmm. I, I, I was born in the middle of a dictatorship and music was not very good thing at that time in Spain. Mm -hmm. So w there was not any youth orchestras. Okay. Actually, I played in the first youth orchestra in Spain, but that was created when I was 18 or 19 later on. So yeah. until, until 19... Uh, 85, 84, there was not any youth orchestra in Spain. So what I did, I started to learn the, the flute and then at some point met uh, a very good teacher at the Madrid Conservatoire. Uh, so I, for a few years, what I did is to take a train, a night train, every week. On, so I miss always one day of school. And on Thursday night, I will take a train to Madrid, which left at 11 in the night, arrives at eight in the morning. I did to, to be able to have a flute lesson at four o'clock mm. with my Madrid teacher, finish the lesson and come back on the same <laughs> train <laughs> back to Santander. So it was a long, uh, long way to have one flute lesson a week, but um, that was fantastic thing for me, you know? Mm. To, to be able to once a week be in Madrid allow me also to, sometimes I could stay an extra day and listen to the concerts uh, in the weekend of mm. the National Orchestra, or I remember the first time I heard the London Symphony Orchestra at Madrid. All this kind of thing was like, oh my God, this is so exciting, you know? Um, it was like an amazing adventure. But at that time, I could not imagine I would do anything apart from music. And so where, where, where did you study? Did you study in Madrid? I mean, I'm talking about from the age of 18, or did you well, go... I studied, in Madrid, I studied in Madrid until I was 18. Mm. Then I had a job at that time, because, you know, probably at, at this time would have been impossible. I got a job when I was 17, before I finished my studies. I, I had a job in an orchestra in Valladolid, which mm. is a couple of hours north of Madrid. And... So in theory, I should have been happy, but I remember at that time thinking, my God, this, this orchestra doesn't sound like the records I have at home. <laughs> I remember talking to my to the friends, I mean, it was okay, but I remember saying, this is okay, it's nice to play this, but this is not like the, this is not like in the recordings, you see? Mm. 
And then I remember I listened once in one of my trips to Madrid. I heard the Concertgebouw Orchestra. Yeah. I was with uh, Antal Dorati conducting. And in case you may be interested, they played Chaik Six and Barto Concerto for Orchestra. <laughs> and then uh, I heard the most amazing sound of flute I could ever imagine at that time. Yeah, yeah. So I found out where this person was teaching, and he was teaching in The Hague. So I never met him, but uh, then I went to The Hague to study, and they accepted me to. So I, I went to The Hague. This was in 1985, I think. I was 19, no, 1994. And then I, I studied with Paul, Paul Ferhey. Uh, he was my, my teacher. I studied for four years and then I stayed another two years to be able to get free. Um, at that time, the, I was, it was obligatory in Spain to, to go to, to do a military service. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had to spend two years or one and a half year. And I said, oh, no, no, I cannot do that. I, I, how can I stop now all this? I, and then I remember I, I started to, to try to study anything I could in, in The Hague to yeah. try to prepare the moment. So eventually, I think they got tired of me. <laughs> so they, they, they said, it's fine, it's fine. You don't need to. You don't need to come to the army. So I spent six years in Holland, and this was fantastic for me. Yeah. Holland was a country where I discovered, you know, you could go. I could go to Amsterdam sometimes to listen to the Concertgebouw Orchestra, or Rotterdam was a bit closer, and I could listen to Rotterdam Philharmonic. And but the biggest impression for me in in the Hague was uh, to meet all the amazing Baroque movement that at that time was happening in The Hague. Yes, you know, yeah. Conservatoire, we had Leonhardt, was the harpsichord teacher, Sigis Valkoiken was a Baroque violin, Wilber um, Hasselset, Traverso, and Bart Koiken, Wilhelm Koiken playing the Baroque cello, uh, Tom Koopman was mm. doing projects with the orchestra. I mean, it was like, Absolutely incredible, and I never ever heard anything like that before in my life. Yeah. You love it or hate it, but at that time for me it was like, oh my god, this is so, so incredibly exciting. And I used to go to all the lessons in the evening. I used to go to listen to all the violin lessons and and uh, baroque flute lessons. So I was really interested in that world suddenly. Now, so far, we're, I'm imagining you're in your 20s, early 20s, would I be yeah. right? Um, we haven't mentioned conducting really at all. Um, uh, and so at what point do you think that entered into your consciousness? Obviously, you'd had a job in Valladolid uh, and you were in orchestras in The Hague, I'm sure. But at what point did, did it ever enter into your mind that you might want to have a go, for want of a better phrase. Well, you know, funny enough, when, when I was studying in The Hague, because suddenly I found myself in a proper conservatoire, you know, with, yeah. or, I wanted to do everything in there. Everything I had done already in Spain, I wanted to do it again. Things mm -hmm. like harmony or analysis, history. I wanted to do everything. And I was interested always about conducting because I was interested in music. And yes. then... I realized there was a conducting class in The Hague. So I thought, oh, why not? So I, I enrolled into the conducting class. And this is extraordinary because, I don't know, I, at that time, I really thought that the conducting class was going to be you know, being in a room and you know, sitting down and having a teacher or somebody saying, OK, let's look at Beethoven too for next week and let's discuss about articulations. I don't know, I thought, I thought this was going to be the kind of thing you don't do in analysis or, yes. you know, discover music to find a little bit more details about music. Mm. And really, I thought this was going to be the conducting class. I don't know why I thought, I, this is the idea I had. The conducting class is something where you are going to look at the music I already loved. And I was going to look into that in detail with yes. somebody guiding me how to look at this in detail. So I arrived to the first class, the first lesson, and we all had to stand up in cha on chairs 
<laughs> start moving the arm like pendulums and yeah. and then do silly things like uh, triplets on one hand and quavers in the other hand. And I mean, you know, I did these things since I was 12. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was 12, I had the Hindemith book of uh, yes. training for music. I mean, I love that kind of thing. And, and suddenly I was in the contacting class doing this incredibly thing doing a pendle with my arms or, or doing triplets with quavers. I thought, this is silly. So I, I went to two lessons and I never went back. <laughs> I mean, I thought if, if this is what conducting is about, I am not. Yeah. Probably I would have. I would have continued maybe the following year. But, but then on my second year in The Hague, I became a member of the European uh, community Youth Orchestra. At that yes. time it was ECYO, now it's called EUYO, now it's European Union. And that was amazing for me. That was incredible. Then I was a young student loving music. Suddenly I got into this amazing orchestra. And I, then we were in Berlin, this was 1987, I think, with doing Leader with Claudia Abado conducting. Jesse Norman was singing, Bridget Fassbinder, George Gray, Barbara Sukova, Philip Langridge, and then you think, ha! <laughs> Claudio Abado was absolutely phenomenal doing Gure Leader. He was in tears in the middle of the concert. I mean, we were all crying like babies. My second project with that orchestra was a tour to India and Europe with Subin Mehta. So suddenly, not having done very much orchestra playing, suddenly you were with Claudia Abado and with Subin Mehta. Yes. And, and suddenly to play in an orchestra became like a magic thing that you can be, oh, I am sitting here and I am inspired by these amazing people. And I thought, my God, what's the point to trying to be a conductor? Because if I am a conductor, I cannot work with them. Mm. Yeah, so true. I thought, you know what? I am very happy. And then, you know, this is the way, I mean, I, I was, I, I could play the flute all right at that time. So things, you know, things were going, I started playing in an orchestra in, in Holland, then, so in a way I was really having a ball. Yeah. I loved it so much, playing in orchestra. So I completely forgot about the idea of conducting. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was it. So I never, I never thought again about, about study conducting. Much the, same, much the same as me. I mean, I joined the profession when I was 21, 22, having done a little bit of conducting at music college. And then I just wanted to play for, as it was then, Simon Rattle and people who yeah. came and visited. I mean, you go from Holland and then, uh, you know, the lion's share of your flute playing career is Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Chamber Orchestra of Europe, London Philharmonic Orchestra, you know, four of the great orchestras of Europe, if not the world, and you probably got to see just about everybody, I would imagine, stood in front of you conducting, which is the greatest greatest class of all, I think. I mean, what do you remember of those those years? I mean, obviously they were great years, but what, you know, who do you remember being standing out as being greats, other than Abado and Mater? I mean, that's a good start in itself. The, the amazing thing is that, um... I mean, of course, Abado and Meta, they were a big impression because they were the, two, the first uh, great conductors, or, or what, yeah, the first amazing personalities I worked with. Actually, before I went to London, I got a job with the Residencia Orchestra, which is actually mm. the Hague Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. And at that time, the principal conductor was Svetlanov. Mm. Svetlanov was an extraordinary. An extraordinary, he was very old. When I, I remember that he used to do a lot of the Philharmonia Orchestra at that time. And they, they, it was always a big event when he came. He was absolutely unbelievable. He was an old Russian guy that he never ever gave an upbeat. <laughs> I mean, he was one of those people that everything about relationship with an orchestra and conducting was so amazing, such control. I mean, he could do just he never need to prepare, and then you always knew what to do. Yeah. I, remember, yeah. I mean, I remember doing Daphne and Chloe completely with, and they say, how? Oh, I mean, he's not doing any bits, and and, <laughs> and 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 we are all together, you know. Yeah. Say, oh, uh, I remember doing the Alpine Symphony, and never an upbeat. And I remember, oh wow. Then anyway, after one year of that, I got uh, my first job in in London. 
which actually was the Academy of Martin in the Fields. And, and that was great, you know. Um, I started working with Neville and going on tour, and that was very exciting. Then I got the RPO when Daniele Gatti was principal conductor. Ah. And I loved playing with Daniele Gatti. Mm. I thought Daniele was a fantastic conductor. I thought he was amazing, amazing uh, technique. You can tell he's one of those people who came from the opera theater. Mm. He could do whatever he wanted with his hands. And, and at that time, we loved him so much in the orchestra. I mean, we, we would jump out of a window for him. You know, whatever <laughs> he wanted, we would do. Mm. And we did it with pleasure. So it was fantastic. I loved working for Daniele. Then, of course, Chamber Orchestra of Europe came during that time. I was in Chamber Orchestra of Europe for 15 years. Mm. I mean, probably you were in CBSO with Gabby Lester or something. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, she was my. Gabby Lester was in COE. Yeah. And um, COE was the. For me, COE, of course, Abado was conducting COE a lot. But at that time, for me, the big discovery and the moment that was very important in my life was to meet Harnoncourt for mm. the first time. Because Harnoncourt. For me, it was like all this information I had in The Hague during my student years. Suddenly, to, to play in an orchestra with somebody that, I don't know, for me, it was like a complete uh, discovery. It, I felt like, um, I felt so stupid often during rehearsals. <laughs> because I would play something, whatever, in Schumann Symphony, like I always, you know, the way I played. And then he would look and say, well, he would turn around the phrase and then eventually you would do it complete different. Yeah. And it makes sense. And I remember often thinking, why didn't I think about that before? Yeah, yeah. Because actually what he was asking was very simple. Actually, what he was asking is to play what is written. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which is often a discovery, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's but, funny. But you know what I mean? You, we, yes, absolutely. There are, yeah, yeah. there are lots of things, you know, that you do because you do. I don't know why, because you have heard. And I don't know. It was, it was extraordinary for me to work with Harnoncourt and made me realize, made me rethink a lot of the things I did. For me, this was like a wow time. Well, it's or, very interesting that, you know, you're the second flautist who played with COE, who was very influenced by Nicholas Arnoncourt, because I've interviewed oh, yeah, Terry Fisher. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, He was my uh, predecessor. Yes, and he said exactly the same thing. I mean, he talked about meeting Arnoncourt before he first came to COE and then playing Beethoven with Arnoncourt and being just having his mind blown and it almost being uh, the start of him thinking about conducting in, to some degree. I mean, you know, he didn't start conducting until he was a lot later in life. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a what an incredible set of conductors to play for, and things that, you know. Now, when you're now you're a full time you know conductor, you're going to rely on those experiences and 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 use them, aren't you, in the back back of your head or in the front of your head? Well, the, the extraordinary thing with somebody like Harnoncourt is also makes you realize. I mean, what what does it mean to be a conductor? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, what what is your function there? I mean, uh, because actually, you can argue Harnoncourt was not. Uh, a magician of the baton. I mean, no. it's not like Loring Marcel, you know, that he could do all these amazing things in a very effective way, of course. Uh, Harnoncourt didn't have that, but, um, but he managed to achieve what he wanted by, you know, by telling us. I mean, the, the, the thing is that there are so many different ways to, yes. to get an orchestra to do things. And probably no one way is right. I think in the end, I think an orchestra reacts to somebody's personality, you know, and, mm -hmm. and in the case of Harnoncourt, yeah, maybe he, he was not the wizard, wizard of the baton, but, uh, you know, we knew what to do. And mm -hmm. actually most of the recordings we did with him are live. So it's not manufactured, you no. know, it's not, we are not, uh, we are not doing a, every time there is a change of tempo, we are doing another take. No, I mean, what you hear is what we did. So mm. that means that it was well rehearsed and, and we felt very secure with him. So actually, it was quite interesting, the contrast of um, Abado's elegance somehow, mm. you know, have somebody Abado being incredibly elegant. And then 
somebody almost rustic, like yeah. Hanukkah, uh, uh, achieving uh, miracles. So, you know, makes you makes you wonder. What it does. <laughs> well, I think that's what's coming over in this podcast is that, you know, you're the 67th conductor I've interviewed and everybody talks about how different everybody is and, you know, when the magic happens. And as you've said, it's about a relationship between conductor and orchestra and it, you can be elegant and they love you and you can be, I loved your word rustic with uh, Han and Kaur. you know, he could stamp and shout and punch and karate chop and do all of these things to get what he wanted from you or remind you that that's what you talked about in the rehearsal and then in the concert we, he would give you you know the open mouth of a crocodile or something to make you play in the way that he'd rehearsed um yeah I, it is fascinating um i, I want to jump on and and find out how conducting came back to your life and why eventually you stopped playing the flute uh, and how you became a full-time conductor. Because you were in the LPO by this point, so I'm imagining... Yeah, I, was, I was in the LPO. No, actually, you know, when I joined, I joined the LPO. The LPO was my, just the last two years of my okay. playing life. Just before I joined the LPO, and in a way, that's the, why I joined the LPO. For, for eight years, I... I left the Royal Philharmonic and I went to English National Opera, to the orchestra. I went to ENO. And the reason for that was my young children. And at that time, between Chamber Orchestra of Europe and the RPO, was all too much traveling. Um, and my wife is also a musician. She's principal bassoon in the London Symphony Orchestra. So it was lots of traveling. And... ENO was perfect for me at that time, a perfect orchestra to make sure that I didn't travel more than necessary and be at home and being able, you know, during those two eight years, I could, because the rehearsals started at 10.30. I mean, sometimes you make decisions for very practical reasons, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, London Symphony rehearsals are at 10 o'clock. So Rachel, to be able to go, she, she could not put the boys in school. She yeah. couldn't do the school run because she had to leave home before that. And then I discovered that ENO, the rehearsals were at 10.30 and it was closer to Waterloo Station. And so actually I could leave the boys at college school and the school where we live, take the train at 9.33 or whatever that time was, and then uh, be on time for my rehearsal and things like that. You yeah. have to, they are very important because we, we have to live our lives. and. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I used to do lots of concertos as a flute player. You mm. know, uh, with the academy, I used to do quite a lot, especially with the small band, with Iona Brown, you know, with strings, and uh, we would the Bach B minor suite or things like that. And so, of course, if you are with doing uh, concertos with a small orchestra and no conductor, in a way, because you are standing up, even if Iona Brown was the director sitting down on the first violin chair, but you are standing up, somehow you lead a little bit the rehearsal. And yes. I remember when I was standing up with my colleagues, having to organize a rehearsal, I remember thinking that it was not traumatic. I mean, I mean, you can take it different ways, that kind of thing. You know, you can be there and say, oh my God, what shall I say? Uh, and, you know, I, I, for me, it was, the, the, I didn't have a problem to, not to tell people how to do something, but to say, oh, can we try this again? Or we are yes. together, or oh, would you consider to do this, whatever, shorter or longer? I mean, it was not a big deal. You know, I, I felt very much like if I would be playing Mozart flute quartets with friends, and then you say, okay, let's try this out. Oh, it's not, let's do it again. You yeah. know, that kind of thing, you know. And I remember sometimes joking, people say, oh, well, you feel so comfortable there. Why don't you, why don't you? Then I was doing lots of concertos in Spain also at that time with the chamber orchestra I used to play with. And then one of the members of the orchestra, a noble player in Madrid said, look, we have a chamber orchestra with people from the national orchestra, radio orchestra. We have a tour. Why don't you come to conduct us? Because it would be nice. Yeah. And then I said, yeah, I said, yeah let's do that. Hmm. And then eventually this guy emailed me and said, look, we have four concerts. Okay will be February, blah, blah, please can you give us a program? 
Yeah. And then, okay, very good. Let me think and I give you a program. And then, so I start going through the repertoire in my mind to imagine op- the, doing the opening of, so I start Beethoven too, okay. Uh, I could not imagine what I would do with my arms to start Beethoven too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mozart 41. Uh, uh, uh. So I start going through repertoire and I could not imagine doing a physical thing with my arms. Any yes. of those pieces, if I had the flute with me, I would say, yeah, let's start. I would be the buff. I would put the flute and, but I could not imagine myself doing any uh, impulse for that. Yes, yeah. So after two weeks of thinking, I just emailed this guy and said, you know what? I am not going to do it. I cannot imagine how I can start any of those pieces. So I will not do it. So I said, no, because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> so no. But but of course I felt a little bit like a loser, you know. Yes. I mean, I I, I, I felt. <laughs> but anyway, I then one year later I got somebody who was a conductor, a student conductor, but organized a summer academy in the south of Spain, and for many years was trying for me to go and do a flute masterclass, and they tried yeah. every year with me because my kids. I said no, no, I cannot do it. But eventually. This guy came back and said, look, why didn't you come to, in the summer to teach a flute? And again, I said, no, 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 no. Yeah, but you know, how can I to tempt you? Look, if you come, we have also an orchestra. And then if you, it would be great if you could conduct the student's orchestra. Yeah. And then I thought, because I had, the, I had this theme from the year before. So you know what? I'll do it. Yeah. Because I thought I want to, I want to, take away the bad taste I had for having to say no. Because I thought with a youth orchestra, I don't mind being a, making a fool of myself. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought, you know, they are kids and, you know, even if I am useless, at least I can tell them stories about the pieces and talk about other conductors. So I went. Yeah. And actually, you know, I mean, probably I was making a fool of myself, but, uh, but actually the, it, it worked well. And I felt very comfortable. They apparently they felt happy, but it's difficult to tell. But uh, no, I, I think everything was working well, so well that somebody listened to the concert and they asked me to do something the following month. Yeah. But this time was a professional engagement. So then suddenly I start being asked to do things. Yeah, yeah. I got I was I, the Irish Chamber Orchestra asked me to do something. Things were starting to arrive. Yeah. Then I did a concert with the orchestra of the Royal College of Music because I was a flute professor at the college. And then they realized I was I did conduct two or three things, and they say, "Oh, why don't you do something with the with the orchestra?" Eventually, somebody, an agent, asked me to to join their agency. Yeah. And that's the time when I thought, "Oh my God!" Then, uh, <laughs> just, yeah. So that that's when I um, at that time was in, I was in the LPO already. Yeah. And then one year later, I went to do a guest conducting date in Sweden with the Yerle Symphony Orchestra. And then they offered me to be the principal conductor of the orchestra. And therefore, the decision is made. No more flutes. You know, know, for me at that time, the idea life was if I could survive just conducting a bit and playing in the orchestra the other half, for me, that was the best thing. Hmm. Yeah, because I remember when I was in the LPO, I would go one week to conduct something and, you know, okay. Then I come back to the orchestra and sit down and I can talk to my colleagues. And actually it was very, very helpful because I could talk to the conductors coming to conduct yes. the orchestra. So I remember too, with Vladimir Jurovsky was principal conductor, Yannick Netzesegan was principal guest conductor. But even sometimes when um, Kurmasur would come and say, so I would go, you know, because... I always got on very well and had a real close relation with the conductors coming to yeah. the orchestra. And if I had any doubt about something, say, oh, oh, what edition would you use for this? Or what, you know, what, or talking about fears. Yes. Or uh, how to approach uh, conducting. There is one thing uh, that always fascinates me about conducting. 
when I was sitting in the orchestra is how it, is it possible that there we are, the same orchestra, today is the same orchestra as yesterday, with the same interest, the same enthusiasm, why today it sounds different? Yes, absolutely. Not better, why is it different? And sometimes the person in front of you are not even telling you to sound different. Is that you are playing different for this person? I mean, you yeah. know that. Mm. Played in orchestras, and then you say, "How is this possible?" Mm. And that always fascinates me. What is this relationship between a conductor and an orchestra that makes makes things work or not? I know. How many times you have been in an orchestra playing with a conductor that everything goes very well, everybody around, oh, we are very happy, and then suddenly something happens, and then... Phew, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Spell, yeah. Broken. Yeah. Or the other way around. Yeah, yeah. The, the breaking of the spell sometimes can be one sentence, can't it? It can be somebody, somebody uses the wrong words in the wrong sentence, and everybody... You know, they don't turn on the conductor, but that goodwill suddenly might disappear. Often, I find, you know, when when an orchestra sort of, you know, to use a, a modern phrase, is meh about somebody, they're, they're, they think, no, meh, they're all right. Then you have two concerts, and then you do the first concert, and the whole orchestra goes, hey, hang on, something happened in that concert. And then all of a sudden, it, people are interested. And it and it can happen, as you say, in the click of fingers that, you know, you lose you lose people. And that that sound thing, I yeah, I'm always intrigued by that. You know, you could put. Well, I've been involved with assistant conductor auditions. You know, and you've got people uh, who come in and conduct the orchestra, the CBSO, and you know, the one I was on, the the guy who conducted the orchestra that we gave the job to, the, the orchestra just sounded completely different to all of the other candidates, and it sounded energized, but he hadn't yeah. said anything, he hadn't done anything. It was just it. It's the magic, you know, it's the magic of what we do, sort of. Um, yeah. The thing is that, of course, I think, I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it's difficult to talk about these things because you never know who is going to be listening to this, what we are saying now, but, I mean, this, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the thing is that, of course, there are, there are um, sometimes, you know, when you play, an orchestra plays with a conductor that is very, very well respected because mm -hmm. of the fame or something. I mean, I remember one day, you know, we were with the LPO and we started playing Sostakovich Symphony. I was with Kurt Masur and there was, we were in Hollywood Hall rehearsing and it sounded lovely. The opening, just the strings. And then Kurt Masur, after probably 12 seconds, stopped uh, and then he said, my friends, where is your sound? Hmm. You know, and then next time we played, the, the, the strings did the opening. It was like a different orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly, the sound was incredible. But of course, Kurmasur is Kurmasur, and he had the relationship with the orchestra. If Kurmasur says to the orchestra, my friends, where is your sound? Everybody understands. Yes. If I go to an orchestra, and I say to an orchestra, my friends, where is your sound? They show me the quickest way to the door. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, what, what I mean is that yeah. sometimes things work because, of course, it's respect mm. and well-earned respect to certain people. And, of course, the, the orchestra is predisposed. And, of course, people like you or people like me, that uh, although, I mean, I, I am a young conductor in an old body. Yes, uh, you know, I, I, I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. I, I am 55 years old, but you know, I've only been conducting for eight years. But, um, but of course, you have to earn everything you, you do. So, no, yeah. uh, but of course, I cannot, I cannot use the same tricks as Kurmasur uses because uh, I am not him. No. And the one thing I realized with a uh, uh, conducting profession, but actually possibly in life in general, you cannot pretend or you cannot even try to be somebody else. No, no. It, it comes out comes out on this podcast episode after episode is you've got to be yourself. Um, and it, there'll be people out there who who love what you do, and there will be people out there, orchestras out there who don't like what you do. But if as long as you're true to yourself then, you know, you, you'll, you'll do okay. You know, if you're a good musician, then, uh, yeah, you cannot pretend to be something else. I, yeah, I did it once, and it, and it backfired badly um, very early on. And, yeah. You know, when you, you see that um, the great people we admire, you know, 
they they've done a, a it's a big journey to arrive to where they are now and you know when you look at hiking uh, or something like that, that they after years of experience they have managed to just do the absolute necessary nothing else mm. things that matter but actually when you see hiking uh, 20 years ago he was very different yeah you know? mm. and so he arrived to that to that moment after many years of experience. Yes. If, if I try to do, or you try to do what he does now and try to do a shortcut, I think that would be catastrophic. Mm. I think you just have to, to experience for yourself. So, I mean, by being yourself, and as you say, Yevle, Symphony Orchestra, they wanted you to be principal conductor. Uh, you've been chief conductor in the Orchestra de Cadiz since 2011. And then just, well, it's not last year, it's now 2019, you, two positions, chief at the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, an orchestra I've conducted once, and they're wonderful. And then also music director of the LA Chamber Orchestra. So you do have four places where the chemistry has worked and you've bonded with people and you can do your things. I, I really wanted to just pick your brains to see, you know, coming from the London orchestral rehearsal speed process, you know what I mean in the fact that ever, RPO especially, you never have any more than a three hour rehearsal for a concert, hardly ever, maybe for a prom, um, but it's all done on three hours. Did you find it difficult at the start to, change the pace a little bit you know when you went to Yevle I'm sure you probably had three or four days rehearsal before the concert um Dublin's a little bit more like uh, England but then Cadiz and LA you probably had different amounts of time how did you find that uh, adjustment in in speed of rehearsing and speed of learning well uh, first of all there, there are uh, what you're saying the, about the RPO and no rehearsal I mean I mean, it is true that in the UK, orchestras tend to be, uh, it's not very much rehearsal time, but the, the RPO at that time, I mean, and things maybe are different. I mean, it is true that we did lots of three-hour yeah. concerts, but actually when we played with our principal conductors, we always rehearsed. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know? mm. Always. I mean, mm. doesn't matter if it was a prom or it was um, uh, whatever, but if yeah. we were with Legati or with... Uh, I mean, even now, people tell me, oh, yeah, because in England, you never rehearse. And I say, it's not true. I mean, because with the CBSO, you've been, CBSO was always rehearsing. Always rehearsing, uh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, rehearsing, you will have three rehearsals or four or whatever. You know, in the LPO, with Vladimir Jurovsky or with Yannick, we would always, we never have less than three rehearsals in general, and very often four, yeah. if not five sometimes. So, actually, it is this idea from, I want to say that because sometimes people think in the continent that no, in Britain, the orchestras don't rehearse. And although the musicians in the UK are incredibly quick, I think uh, people enjoy rehearsing if it's for a reason. Yes, oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what I, I, was, re I was really sort of thinking about the fact that, you know, the, the, the process for, I mean, for instance, yeah, you're right. The CBSO or an LPO concert under the music director or the RPO under the music director will have probably about between 10 and 12 hours rehearsal before you get to the concert. It's no different in Yevle, just that you will maybe have four on a Monday, four on a Tuesday, four on a Wednesday, and four on a yeah, Thursday. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a different, different yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I love that, in mm. a way, you know, mm. because especially when I was um, at the beginning, you know, and, and even later on, I mean, I think to, to, to rehearse is, is a way to, to get a, a connection with the music. I. But I am not only saying that from the conductor side, you know, when I was in the orchestra, I enjoyed to get to know the piece. I mean, actually, most of the concerts I did with the RPO, the out of town concerts, yes. with one rehearsal and a concert, I remember that as a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, remember, I remember one of my first RPO concerts. I remember we had to go to Cardiff mm. to the concert, and it was at the beginning. I was not that experienced as a flute player yet. And, and then suddenly we were there with Orwell Hughes, conduct, uh, who was conducting. And, yeah. and then we had uh, Don Juan Strauss, and then uh, Rachmaninoff Paganini Variations, and Chaik Five. Yeah. 
on three-hour rehearsal. I've never played any of those pieces in my life. <laughs> and, I, and I remember with the rehearsal started with Don Juan and, and <laughs> before I realized the piece was finished and I thought, yeah. my God, what was going on here? Yeah. And then suddenly the rough pack and uh, actually it's a very difficult thing for the flute. Then we started Chai 5 and, and the conductor said, ah, you know the piece, see you in the concert. So yeah, yeah. while the whole orchestra was having a curry outside, <laughs> I was in the hall practicing like mad. The concert, and I, I almost had 25 heart attacks during the concert. So although I learned a lot from doing that, I don't have a particularly fond memory. No. <laughs> you know. And, and actually taking it a little bit further, did you ever... Uh, I, I don't know this, the, the answer to this question. Did you ever conduct one of those? I mean, just to, to linger slightly on this concept of... Um, and every orchestra in the UK does it for various repertoires or an out-of-town concert, as you said. Three-hour rehearsal and concert. The second time I conducted the RPO, I did a concert which was American in Paris, uh, Billy the Kid Suite, Fanfare for the Common Man, Rhapsody <laughs> in Blue, and the Symphonic Dances from West Side Story, all on a yeah. three-hour rehearsal. You know, if you couldn't say it with your hands and your uh, and your arms and your face and your eyes, you basically had about 30 seconds to stop each piece and, and rehearse it. And they're frightening. Have you conducted any of those? Uh, because they're just as frightening as they were to play in. I can tell you that I've for nothing. Only, I've only conducted once. Um, yeah. uh, after uh, one rehearsal and concert. Yeah. That was the first time I did the LPO, but that was the last time. I mean, I've conducted the LPO many times after that, and after yes. that, we had normal rehearsal time. Yeah, but that yeah. was my first time. That was like um, I did my last concert as a principal flute of the LPO in November. I don't remember the year that was with Yannick, yeah, conducting. We were doing Heldenleben, that was November, so and we did uh, the speech, goodbye. Blah, blah, blah. And then the following January, I conducted the orchestra for the first time. It was an out-of-town date, and we had one rehearsal. We were doing Every Day's Overture, Mozart, Clarinet, Concerto. Yeah, and then Eroica. Yeah. British orchestras can do that, mm. you know, because they are, it's, it's amazing. I mean, that's the one thing I am amazed about. Yeah, yeah. Orchestras in, 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 in the UK, that is just phenomenal how people have this ability to, to, to also to receive information, you know? Yes. I mean, you know, if a conductor, somebody says, oh, at the beginning, this, whatever, a little comma here, people remember that for the rest of the piece. Mm. So mm. this will be applied to every time this kind of pattern comes later on. So it's, it's absolutely fantastic. But yeah, it is. <laughs> my program, my the program I did with the LPO in one rehearsal was easier than yours. Because <laughs> <when> you are... <laughs> but if any orchestra can do your program with all this music in one rehearsal, that's the RPO, because that would be. <laughs> I can imagine that uh, this is the kind of music they absolutely they will play like wow. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, for those who who don't work in the UK, they they're the sort of things you get to do. The first time I worked with your orchestra, the LPO, your, your last orchestra, was again a very similar thing in Eastbourne when they have a series there on a Sunday. Um, and, you know, I did the a Tchaikovsky Serenade for Strings, Sanson's second cello concerto and Vorjak 8. And it was one of those where you just think, right, I've got three hours. Um, the Sanson nobody will know because they've all played the first concerto, but never the second. Um, the Tchaikovsky is always legendarily difficult. So I'd better leave about an hour to do Vorjak 8 because they'll all know it backwards. Uh, and fortunately the tactic works but yeah that that's well that's what it's like um yeah. uh, one topic that every conductor has answered my question on and it's the last thing i talk about before we go to the 10 questions is score preparation when you come to learn a new work or be it contemporary or a piece of standard repertoire you've never conducted do you have a plan do you have a system uh, and are you a writer of things in your scores? Do you uh, scribble away in various colours like I do? Or are you like lots of other conductors who write nothing in and seem to absorb this stuff like um, by osmosis? How do you go about it? Well, you know, I, I put lots of things on my scores, not on different colours. Uh, it's all with my very thick pencil. But um, I think the first thing I try to do when I'm going to learn a new piece 
is to try to um, read about the, 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 you know, to try to put my head as, as close as I can mm. for, uh, of the context of this piece, the context yes. in the composer's life or in the particular city or a particular moment in history. I think that really helps me to, 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 to start imagining, you know, what kind of mood uh, the, the composer had uh, at, that, at that time. And actually my preparation with the score, you know, when I have a, a, a blank score, what I try to, to organize, apart when you start looking at the harmonies and the development, but I try to have a very clear idea of where do phrases mm. start and finish. I, I like to have that just to, to you know, to, to get my head round, to, to get them, um, uh, yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary because probably happens the same to you. It's very rare for me to conduct a piece that I have not played. Mm, absolutely true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very rare. So that already is a huge advantage. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's something I thank myself every time something comes around. You think, well, yeah, I remember playing this. But it, yeah, it's only contemporary music you know, or something. Contemporary music is different. Yeah. But, yeah. but the, 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 when I say it's an advantage, I think it is, a, of course, even if I haven't played a piece, you sort of have heard it once sometimes and know how it is constructed, but I find very um, interesting when I'm conducting a piece and I have experience of having played this piece, is that through through the, the experience during rehearsals in the past or whatever, you know, you get to know which things are possible or what things are not possible or what particular things are difficult. Because as you know, there are there are things that you think is going. This is going to be okay. This is going to be easy, and as actually suddenly becomes very really difficult, <laughs> or the other way around. Things that are, you think this is going to be very difficult become actually this is this is not so 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 difficult. The one thing I try to make very clear in my mind before I conduct any orchestra or I study a piece is that in any any reasonable orchestra, most orchestras actually, can play this piece without a conductor. Mm. This is what I try to tell myself always, mm. because I am not there. Actually, the orchestra don't need me to do this. Yes. Actually, any orchestra can do that nowadays. Maybe, maybe Rite of Spring will be a bit more complicated sometimes, <laughs> but, but it's still possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it, I've seen it, uh, Rite of Spring with no conductor. It can work very well. So, and for me, it's very important to think that before I have a piece, the orchestra can play this piece. Yeah. So my job is not just time beating. Yeah. Four four three three eight three eight five eight because the orchestra absolutely can do that. My job is something else than that. It's not. I mean, my aim in a, if you know is if your aim in the piece is just not to get lost through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I, I think in, during the preparation of a piece, you know, for me, sound is very important. It was very important as a flute player, and I think it is very important for me now as a conductor. I think the the, the kind of um, imagining sound in my head, I think that's that's almost an obsession. You know, it is a. I don't know. I mean, I think it's so great. And for me, a, a, a chord in an orchestra, you know, it will be so different sound if uh, how the voices are distributed in the chord. Yes. And for that, I will be eternally grateful to a masterclass I saw at the Royal Academy of Music many, many years ago with Alfred Brendel. Mm. There was Alfred Brendel in one piano and the student in another piano and we were in a small room and then the piano the student was fantastic it was really very very good playing mm. a Beethoven sonata and then at some point Alfred Brendel said um, yeah yeah but have you thought look and then he played this score and then suddenly it sounded like it's not a better or worse piano it's a different instrument 
<laughs> the, the sound was, you know, but on the piano, you think it cling, you know, but it was extraordinary. And actually, when you had such clear explanation why the sound was different is because the problem on what you are doing here is that you are not distributing the notes in the chord in the right way. So, yeah. I mean, look, here is the dominant. So basically the third finger has to be a little bit higher. The second, you know, so basically you had to micro adjust, which sounds, <laughs> but, but actually that micro adjustment that for Brendan becomes part of hours of work mm. makes that the chord, uh, you know, it's not because the sound or the touch is because he, his concept of how a chord has to be distributed in the, the voices makes this amazing sound. And I think with an orchestra it's very, very, very similar. Um, and of course it takes time and, and sometimes takes courage. Yeah. To... Well, when, when there's 80 or 100 people and you've got a chord, you know, you've got 80 or 100 fingers, well, maybe less, but you know what I mean? It's, it, you can tinker endlessly with that. And um, yeah, you're right, balancing is, is such an important thing. Even at the early stages when you're, you can, a chord can look at on the, on the paper, you look on the paper and think, the horns are just going to wipe that chord out. They'd say, you know, that, uh, and working out how that balance works. Um, you know, I always think about the end of Heldenleben, that all of the horns are sitting on the dominance of the chord. I think it's the end of Heldenleben. You think, well, how, that's never going to work as a balance, but it does because of how everybody else sits on the chord. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very important thing to do when we're studying the scores. Yeah, and then, and then in the end, it's a question of, it's a question of courage also in the end. It's just to, because, you know, with, with an orchestra, it is, it can be a very overwhelming feeling of so many people in front of you. And sometimes um, you don't want to be dogmatic or you don't, but, but I think it is necessary. And, and I think the orchestras do appreciate also if you have something you are fighting for. Yes. I mean, when I say fighting, I say in the best, but, but mm. you know, I, I believe that, so I would like to insist on that. Mm. So I think sometimes it's difficult, you know, you try not to be too heavy and then, okay, fine, fine. But I, I don't think, I don't think people mind mm. to try something a few times or, or to, or at least to insist on one particular fantasy of yours, to call it somehow or something, but something you really believe in and something of course, in the end, you have to choose your battles and you cannot fight all the battles and you cannot, uh, the same that you cannot smell all the flowers in a garden, you know, you have to choose which ones uh, uh, to smell and then get a general idea of the colors of all this garden. <laughs> but you, you, can, you don't have time to, to enjoy the smell of each of the flowers, mm. but, uh, but there are few you can you can smell. And I think an orchestra rehearsal is very similar to that. You know, there are a few little things that I think people need to know in the orchestra. What, what is about the, what about the music makes this person excited or what is trying to achieve or what, what is your idea behind this particular phrasing or something. Jaime, it's 10 questions time, and as ever, it's time to start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of birds early in the morning, and I hate the sound of uh, uh, building works next to the hotel room early in the morning. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would like to spend it doing absolutely nothing and not plan for it, but preferably I would love to do a walk or to do a bit of, but I, the best thing is not to have a plan, mm. not to have an interview at four o'clock and a, a Zoom call or whatever. If the day is off, I will be so happy and it will flow, but mm. to have no, no, not a schedule for the day. I agree. I love not having schedules for the day. Thank you. So that's all I want. <laughs> so sorry to disappoint you today. <laughs> but I'm well, getting you to come on the podcast. Today doesn't qualify as a free day. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, um, the next one, you can have more than one. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, for me, I think 
I would go for a combination between Kleiber and Harnoncourt. Well, what a combination that would be. I mean, the, the, the use of language alone that those two conductors had in rehearsal about how to get their point across, the use of metaphor. Um, yeah, wouldn't well, that be amazing? Both, both, both create images on people's minds. Mm. And I think, you know. And I agree with you because in episode 50, somebody else interviewed me and I gave exactly the same answer, Kleiber and Harnoncourt. So, really? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. There you yeah. go. Um, a more difficult question, and a question that some conductors particularly don't like, um, who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Well, in, in this piece of paper, you say here, favourite conductor or conductors, not yourself. And, <laughs> and um, you know, this is a, a question I would uh, politely decline to answer. Fair enough. <laughs> I think you might be the first person to decline. I think some people have said it's difficult to give an answer um, because they find it very much repertoire-led. You know, if they wanted to listen to Bruckner, yeah. they would listen to, I don't know, Yannick, or they would listen to Andres Nelsons or whatever. But, yeah, that if you... <laughs> I would prefer not to... <laughs> not to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Absolutely, with no doubt, Chaik 4. Ah. And the reason is because I was not expecting it to be difficult. Ah, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Because I had played Chaik 4 yeah. one million times before that. And I really thought, ah, this is fine. I mean, what can, what can be the problem? Yeah. No, I have conducted uh, Rite of Spring, Petrushka, Machine, things that are diabolically difficult in that kind of sense. I have never found myself as worried in a rehearsal of Chaik for us. So, but luckily I learned very quickly. And then I did, I did Chaik for again later on, a few years later, after I got rid of the depression. <laughs> I didn't expect that it was going to be hard and it was. And was that mainly the first movement? I mean, I remember the first time I yeah, conducted the, the first, first movement. The first movement. The first yeah. movement. Oh, God. No, the rest is easy. First yeah. movement. Yeah. And yeah. I was not prepared for that. I was not prepared for being difficult. Actually, in a way, I, because, you know, I know it. You know, this is the kind of piece you play. You can play with no conductor. And suddenly I thought, how can I be so useless? Anyway, there you go. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Without my Kindle. Yes. And mm -hmm. I tell you why. You know, when you travel on your own conducting, you undoubtedly, I mean, you have to eat along in a restaurant sometimes, you know. And it's something I am learning to, to do that. But sometimes you feel very intimidated eating on your own in a restaurant because in most restaurants, especially if it's a little bit nice, there are two people, three people, four people, having a lovely time and then there you are on your own mm. and then you, you feel a little bit because people are looking and in the past we the only way to to survive being in the restaurant on your own was with a book mm. but but you know you remember that with a book was terrible because you had to put the flower pot or the, the salt <laughs> in or anything because of the pages kept closing or open. And it always was a mess. You didn't know what to put in the book. And Kindle really made that possible. So thanks to a Kindle, mm. I can be happily on my own in a restaurant. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would like um, for an automated uh, a program on a computer that could organize the rehearsal orders for me. <laughs> oh, brilliant answer. Yeah. Or something because sometimes, you know, orchestras, they want to know the rehearsal order for something is going to happen in 13 months time. Yeah. And they want to know exactly at what time you are going to do the piano concerto. And actually, I don't know if I will be alive next year. And I have to make decisions sometimes <laughs> about, about, uh, you know. Oh, that's a, one, a wonderful answer. You, can, you cannot even think about this piece now because I actually I am conducting another piece today. And, and sometimes the answer needs to be today. And then you go, oh, and uh, actually I cannot think. And 
and uh, you have to come up with something. So if there was an automatic program that knows how I organize the rehearsals and could send this uh, rehearsal orders, that would be fantastic. <laughs> and there'd be a lot of people buying it as well. Oh, I hate that. As I, Jaime, I hate that as well. When it's 13, 14 months in advance, and they say, well, what, you know, when do you want the piano concerto? Or, uh, and you say, well, I, often I will give them an order for day one of the rehearsals, and then I say day two, uh, just put in brackets, it depends how day one goes. You know, why? It's a word like that, because yeah. the third hobo wants to maybe go to the dentist. On the <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, my God. You know, I wouldn't mind to... I know it is lots of work, but I would love, I would love to be a chef. Mm. To, you know, to cook. Yeah, yeah. I like cooking, but sometimes I have this fantasy that I would like. But only the only problem is that when I see... TV programs about kitchens and it's such hard work and very stressful. But anyway, no, I, I, I would be very fascinated by that. Well, if you're fascinated by cookery, cooking and being a chef, let's go straight to number 10. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Certainly red wine. Yes. Red wine, without doubt, that's my favourite drink. Uh... You know, I, I, I am really sorry, but I, 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 I feel paralyzed suddenly with that because I love food so much and I, I, love, I love trying anything, you know, I love, I love everything. And um, I don't think I could put my finger on it. And, uh, you know, actually, yes, one thing I could lose, I could live with stews. I, uh, I am a rustic, simple person in that sense. I love cooking stews and I love eating stews mm. so we, yeah any kind of stew makes me very happy something comforting food like that yeah I, I, that's one thing you know I used to cook lots of stews for my for my sons and and they always loved it so yeah. much that one, when they were very young they say oh that is so good uh, why don't you go to MasterChef and that was such a big compliment <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Um, well, a stew and a glass of red wine sounds wonderful. Uh, and it's been wonderful. And um, thank you for complimenting my podcast by coming on, Jaime. It's been really good fun. And I hope when all this is over, um, I might bump into you and we can share a glass of red wine in the future. That would be very nice. I made the stew. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> a Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a British conductor who is equally at home on the concert platform and in the Opera House. He has been music director with three different opera companies in the UK, as well as having title positions with symphony orchestras in Australia, France and Spain over a long and distinguished career. But until then, bye-bye.